In my rough notes for this episode, it says I need something witty for the intro. I beg to differ. This morning, I shared breakfast with Alithia, one of my friends from Madrid. She's about to start her PhD and will be presenting in one of the mid-flock workshops at the end of next week. During the Federated Logic Conference, there are lots of one- and two-day workshops that run over the weekends. I'll be attending the Pragmatics of SAT workshop this Saturday, and the Logic Mentoring workshop on Sunday. I think the format of these will be lots of short presentations from a wide variety of people working in the field. Alithia's workshop is going to be on the subject of termination, and she has 30 minutes until it must terminate. I quite like the idea of this. So far, the lectures have been three hours each, broken over two sessions. These are great for exploring a topic in a lot of detail, but sometimes it's nice to take a broad, shallow look to get a high-level overview. That being said, the subjects for the workshops can be quite specialised. I think the Pragmatics of SAT workshop, for instance, will be about the clever algorithms that underpin satisfiability solvers, and some nitty-gritty details about how they work. After breakfast, I wandered over to the first lecture on epistemic modal logic. This name was completely foreign to me. I found the lecture utterly fascinating. I was clinging on to every word and really enjoyed the style of the lecturer. She asked the audience lots of questions, and there was a lot of interaction and reflection about hypotheses and how they relate to learning. As a concrete example, the lecturer showed sequences of playing cards, such as the ace, king, then queen of spades, and asked us to hypothesize what the next card might be in the sequence. It seems obvious that a reasonable hypothesis would be the jack of spades, and we discussed what factors determine a good hypothesis. We then used these ideas to study more complex examples. For example, let's say you're trying to guess the pattern behind this sequence. 1, 2, 2, 3, 3. What would your guess be for the next number? Here's one plausible hypothesis for the sequence. Perhaps it's counting upwards, but each time a new number is reached, it's repeated one extra time. That would mean the next number is a 3, i.e. we've seen 1 1, then two twos, and we're about to see a third 3. Another plausible hypothesis is that the sequence is ascending in pairs. Perhaps this sequence is the pair 1 2, then 2 3, then 3 4, in which case the next number would be a 4. It's ambiguous, and there isn't really a correct answer as to which hypothesis is better, but there are some objective ways to measure these hypotheses. For example, Occam's razor is a philosophical idea that the simplest hypothesis tends to be the correct one. So perhaps we could consider the Turing machines that generate sequences matching these hypotheses, and see which Turing machine is the smallest. There's also something called mind change complexity. The idea here is that it's preferable to choose a hypothesis that can quickly be invalidated if it's wrong, when we see the next number or two. That way, if our hypothesis hasn't been invalidated for a while, then perhaps it's correct. We spoke a bit about the decidability of hypotheses, too. I really enjoyed this bit. 
I've recently been watching lectures on undecidability and feel like I understand the topic quite well. The lecturer asked a question about a particular sequence and asked the audience whether the hypothesis could be decided one way or the other. Several people in the audience were insistent the problem was undecidable, and I bravely put my hand up to explain why the problem was semi-decidable, sometimes called recursively enumerable. This was very satisfying and gave me a confidence boost. In my book, any lecture that talks about countably and uncountably infinite sequences is bound to be a good one. Later on in the lecture, we were introduced to a famous logic problem called the Muddy Children Puzzle. I won't go through the details of it here, but feel free to Google it. This puzzle motivated a way for us to represent knowledge in graphs. These graphs don't directly represent what we know, but rather what agents, or in this case, children, know. You can then use these graphs to ask questions such as does person A know that person B doesn't know X, or things like that. This is important in AI if you need to build some kind of agent that needs to reason about what other agents in the system know. As humans, we develop a theory of mind at about two years old, and it's obvious to us that Alice might know something that Bob doesn't. There are certain tasks that require reasoning about situations like this. In the second session of this lecture, things started to get very abstract. A connection was made between these kinds of graphs and topology. I'm pretty sure the connection was made via hypergraphs, which is a generalization of a graph where more than two nodes can be connected by an edge, but I'm not really sure. Eventually, we could introduce some notion of an ordering that meant we could qualitatively say whether one hypothesis was better than another. I was pretty lost towards the end of the lecture, though. I had a quick lunch today, as I was keen to edit the last episode of this podcast. The afternoon lecture was on inductive logic programming, and it began by asking which of these statements, A or B, is more general. Play along at home, if you like. A. Daffy Duck can fly. B. All ducks can fly. Okay, so which do you think is more general? Find out the answer in part two.